Hey, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of Life After Life with me, Sandy Byrne. And today I have a guest from the United States. Um, his name is Dylan Sessler. Am I saying that correctly, Dylan Sessler? Yes, you are. Yes. So Dylan is a mental health coach, a professional speaker, podcast host um, of the Dylan Experience. He's an entrepreneur, a combat veteran and author of the book, Defy the Darkness, A Story of Suicide mental health and overcoming your hardest battles and i also have to add a new father he's um only he's a little daughter who's just several weeks old so congratulations on that one that's going to be your biggest challenge yet <laughs> absolutely thank you sandy but welcome to the program dylan where i'm so honored to have you on here um and you know a lot of people may have seen you on TikTok. You have a huge following on TikTok, TikTok, over half a million people, and you talk a lot about mental health. Would it be okay if I just ask you to start by telling us your story, your history? Yeah. How, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where, I mean, I'll, I'll start with why I'm on TikTok, because that's, mm. that's weird enough for me. Um, so I, I started talking about tick, you know, stock started talking about mental health and, and suicide on TikTok because two years ago I found myself in a place where I was like just really comfortable with myself. Uh, I think for the first time in my life, you know, I, I had built up to a point um, because everything that came before uh, was trauma, was grief, was loss, was all sorts of different things. Because at six years old, I lost my dad to suicide. Um, and, and because of that moment, I, I developed all of these really difficult habits to break. Things like guilt, things like shame, uh, things like regret. Um, poor decisions were, were abundantly punished by myself and by the people around me. Um, and so it, I just, I found myself after six years old, after losing my dad, uh, you know, and having that trauma kind of thrust upon me without ever understanding it. Um, I found myself slowly self-destructing without really recognizing it. But at the same time, I, I countered it with my own set of principles and rules. And so I was like, I was in this really weird place for most of my childhood, trying to both live and do exactly the opposite of my dad, but also build the fundamental foundation of ultimately wanting to end my life, uh, which came around 25. Um, and so I was like, I was kind of living in this, this duality of life, trying to be two different things, trying to be a person that completely self-loathed uh, constantly, and then also trying to be a person that was trying to better themselves, trying to be someone that their father would be proud of. Um, and it just didn't, it didn't mesh, right? It, it just wasn't working. Um, I, I ended up joining the military at, uh, at 17. Uh, I ended up going to Afghanistan around 22. Saw some pretty, pretty terrible things, some pretty rough things in Afghanistan, my first deployment, and came home with undiagnosed PTSD, uh, without a doubt. And it just put me in this 
really deep and dark place because three or four days after I got home from Afghanistan, I tore my ACL. Um, and if you don't know anything about your ACL, it's basically the ligament that stabilizes your knee. And if you're in the military, that's obviously not good. So they sent me to Fort Knox because I was still in active duty to recover. So they did a, they did a full reconstruction on me um, with a cadaver ACL and, and made me recover for about, they told me it was going to be about 12 months. And this is three or four days after I got home from Afghanistan for 12 months. Um, so I was like, I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be here for 12 months. Um, and so basically my time at Fort Knox uh, was both, I think the most inspired I've ever been, but also the most, uh, the most internally destructive because I was alone. I was so very, very alone in that time that I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to figure myself out. I'm trying to get there because I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. This is where, you know, combat veterans go to have their, you know, limbs amputated and, and mm -hmm. be fitted for prosthetics, right? Like I'm just this guy that, you know, tore my ACL when I was at home. Like I, I don't, I shouldn't even be here kind of thing. So I just forced myself to be the most motivated I've ever been. But I was, I was awake for 23 hours a day in Fort Knox because the, the PTSD that I got from Afghanistan and the consistent lack of sleep that I got there just put me in this really dark place. Right. So I came home in about seven months. It was, they were like, this is remarkable. Like nobody's ever done that before. And I'm like, I, I'm not staying here because if I stay here any longer, I'm going to find a way to, to not live anymore. Um, and so I came home and found myself back in college, but it was one of those times in my life where you could be in a room full of people and be completely alone, right? Because there was this fundamental silence between what I was thinking and what I was expressing. Nobody knew what I was, what I was thinking about. Nobody knew what I was really, what was really going on in my head. And ultimately a few bad things happened. Like I broke up with my girlfriend a, a, a month prior um, and, and obviously I was, I was still going through ACL tears. I actually tore my ACL three times in three years during this period of time. Um, so I'm like still in the army, but every, every year was, I was on the verge of getting out because of my, my injuries. And I was my mil the military career that at the time was my identity. I needed that. And so it was, it was such a kind of, a a, a, a chaos of, of sorts that was always kind of bubbling up of like, am I actually going to be able to stay in? And what does that mean for me? And so all of this kind of crescendoed to a point where uh, in March of 2015, I just couldn't handle it anymore. You know, my, my coping skills were <laughs> negligent. I just never had any. Um, I never had the ability to do anything but self-loathe. And ultimately that came down to a point where I, I put a gun to my head and uh, I don't know how I didn't pull the trigger, but I, I pulled, you know, had to be 99% of that trigger. And then I let off. Right. And, and that wasn't intentional. It was this, this idea that I don't want to be here anymore. I don't, you know, not only that, but I don't want to cause all of these people that I'm causing problems to, uh, to deal with this anymore. So I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right. And that's where I think where I am right now, that's where my story begins, because that's that's kind of the the moment that turned everything on ahead and said, Dylan, you can't 
you can't do whatever it is that you're doing anymore and expect to live right it, it forced me to really have this internal dialogue with myself because i didn't know what i was doing right i didn't know what i was doing right or i didn't know what i was doing wrong we are essentially blind to ourselves we don't know what we do and so if you isolate yourself in this cocoon of yourself and say i can figure it all out by myself you are fundamentally failing yourself because you're blind right you, we we will never see everything that we need to see in ourselves to to become more functional to become better to you know to be better human beings because that's why we have coaches that's why we have mentors that's why we have all sorts of different people that their job their entire job is to look at people and say if you did this you might have a better time right you might be better at this you might be able to do this i never had that i never gave myself that opportunity and so in 2015 all of that came to that point and and i nearly i nearly made a choice that you know I, I wouldn't be here if this benefits anybody, right? I wouldn't be here to make that to make that impact that I have. The, the half a million followers that have followed me, um, and, the, and the thousands of people that have reached out to me and say I've saved their lives, wouldn't have happened because one moment of you know you want to be here. of it of an entire lifetime of of trauma that was unprocessed, um, and so now. In the past seven years, I've taken, uh, I've taken, I've taken that on as my life's work, right? My 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 attempt to understand me has has kind of put me in this point of being able to help others, um, because I was always akin to understanding what is the work that all of these people keep talking about. Like, well, you got to put in the work. I'm like, well, what what the hell does that mean? Um, and and I set out to answer that question. Um, I, I try to do that in my book. I, I think my book is a work in progress. That's why you write multiple books um, yeah. because I don't have all the knowledge. I'm, all, I'm only 32 years old. I don't have all the knowledge. I'm still learning. Um, and so that's my plan is like every, every year is a new opportunity for me to really understand how do I work? Am I happy with this? Um, and how, how now do other people live their lives and struggle and go through this. Um, and that's where I find myself now is, you know, what TikTok's given me the opportunity to do is understand other people's lives, which are so very different from mine, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, what's, what's remarkable to me is not that we have such different lives, but that we have the same emotions. And so we can have the same conversations. We just need the same words. I just don't think so many people lack the words to have the conversation about what they're actually thinking and feeling. And so when someone offers them advice or assistance, they often don't understand the words that are trying to be exposed to them. Um, and so that's, that's kind of where I am right now is, you know, my goal is to help people find the words and, and find the very thing that I think I, I really struggled to find most of my life. And that was that connection with not only others, but myself. Sure. I mean, there is so much in that. I mean, you've opened you opened yourself up there. Um, I don't know where to start. I suppose the first thing that really hit me when you started talking was that you were six years old when your dad died. And yeah. I would have to admit that I have been guilty of saying that kids bounce back, you know, and I think it's kind of the, 
you know, something that everybody thinks, you know, kids get over it, kids move on. But obviously, from your experience, it's not necessarily the case. They carry so much of that with them throughout their lives. Well, and, and you know, I don't disagree with you. Right? That's, the, that's the really interesting thing about, I think, early childhood trauma. Kids do bounce back, but they bounce back in a direction that isn't always beneficial for them, right? True. They, kids survive, right? Humans survive. I should, we, we don't even need to have this conversation about just kids. Humans survive, right? Yeah. It's, it's so, you know, as, as prevalent as suicide is and how, how, how difficult it is, it's not all that common in terms of when we're talking about adversity and trauma, right? Mm-hmm. When, when people go through trauma, there's, there's, there's millions and billions of people that go through trauma every year that bounce back and, and yeah. recover and keep going, right? Now, that's not to say that suicide isn't, you know, a, a, an uncommon problem. It's a common problem. It is. But the thing is, is that the conversation that we need to have is that we need to understand how people bounce back is important, right? The way I did it, not right. I, I Not right for me, at least, right? Yes. And so that, that conversation of like kids do bounce back, they do. They always will, right? Mm-hmm. Some will do it better than others and some will hide it better than others. I hit it. And I hit it well, right? I hit it so well because no one was really looking for it. Um, and that was, I think, the product of the times that, that I lived in. Nowadays, it's not that that doesn't happen, but I think we have so much more awareness now that we have the ability to, to have that conversation with children. Or at least parents look at their children and say, something's definitely wrong and I don't know what to do, right? And so then yeah. therapy is a much more viable option nowadays than it was back then but even then like it was an option i just didn't use it my mom took me to therapy and i i just didn't talk right and so you have to you have to understand that there's this whole swath of the population that is fearful of talking to certain people right Or, or people in general and so you have to be able to look at them and say how can i connect with them how, who can connect with them? Because it may be a man that connects with them better. It may be a woman that connects with them better. It may be a parent that connects with them better. And so you have to teach the people that can connect with them how to connect with them. And if they don't, uh, it, it, it makes it remarkably difficult because really what people need, you know, because I really think it's it's kind of an addiction, right? This addiction to self-loathing and self-hate, um, self-destruction, the opposite. I, I, I had a podcast with Maria Lessi, um, who lost her husband a couple of years ago. Uh, she said the opposite of addiction is connection. And it's, it's stuck with me ever since. And I think it's so remarkably important when we talk about this conversation about suicide. If you want to stop someone from being addicted to self-hate, connect with them and help them see the error in their the, the way they discuss things about themselves. Because when you start addressing like, hey, you know, that's that's hurtful of yourself. Mm. People are like, well, what are you going to do, right? Like it, it, it forces you to kind of look at that situation and say, well, you're right. I do hate myself. Well, and then you can have a different conversation than you've ever had before. And that's important. It is, yeah. Talking is, is, is a huge issue. And I want to come back as well, because you talk a lot about trauma, which is obviously, you know, uh, very important. It, it, it's part of everything. 
because um, I'm nodding away. I know if people are listening, they won't see me. I'm nodding to everything that Dylan is saying. And, you know, I've made no secret of the fact, and I don't talk about why necessarily, but I was diagnosed with PTSD myself a few years ago. And I still find it very difficult to talk about. I'm still not kind of over it. And I get the whole thing that you're saying with sleep and everything. And yet I feel guilty because I have PTSD because I haven't been to war. You know, I haven't, you know, had that experience. So I feel, you know, how could I possibly have PTSD? But yet I have. Soldiers don't have a monopoly on PTSD. They never will. Right. People... It, what's what's always remarkable about this conversation is that people go to war with themselves every day, right? Some people will, right? And I, I imagine you have, right? I certainly have. I got, I, I earned my PTSD long before I ever went to war, right? That's that's the one thing I learned from when I went to Afghanistan. And I came home, they gave us all these conversations and these discussions and these presentations on PTSD. And I was like, wow, all that sounds really familiar. Yeah. I was like, I wonder where that came from. It's like, I never, until I was 20, 23 years old, I never recognized the fact that, you know, losing my dad was traumatic. Uh, being abused as a kid was traumatic. Being bullied as a kid was traumatic. Uh, going then going to Afghanistan was traumatic, right? Like I had been through multiple traumas before I had ever gone to even basic training, right? War is not where you earn PTSD, right? It's, it's, it's just one, it's just one place, right? And for, for anyone that does feel guilty for that, like I'm, I'm a soldier, right? I've been to Afghanistan twice now, right? your PTSD is 100% valid. And no, and, and if anybody tells you anything otherwise when it comes to, well, you've never been to war, you just tell them to shut the fuck up, right? Because you clearly don't understand what you're even talking about. Because trauma is trauma, it's relative, right? A three-year-old, right? You slap a three-year-old as hard as you can in the face, guess what, that's trauma. Yeah. But you, you know, there's 30-year-old there's men that have slapping contests and that's not, not trauma to them. Cause that like, that's their, that's what they want to do. That's their job. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's relative to whatever in your life and how you perceive the world, how you perceive everything. There's small traumas, there's big traumas, right? But it's relative to what you know and see your body tells you whether it's trauma or not. It's not, it's not your therapist. It's not me. It's not, you know, Diane from HR, right? Like it's your your body, when your body can't handle it, when it's overwhelmed and it looks at you and it says, hey, dissociation, we're shutting down, we're shutting down for the day, right? Like that's, that's when you know your body says that's trauma. And yeah. if you don't listen to that, if you listen to Diane from HR, it's not going to be a good time. I can promise you that. Oh, I agree 100%. And just to be clear, no one's ever said to me that, you know, it's not valid. But I think it's part of the PTSD that you feel guilty and you yeah. think I shouldn't have it. And I think that that's, that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, because um, I, I think I had a quick look at the numbers in the US and I see suicide is, is huge there. Um, it's huge in Ireland and, you know, has been for quite a few years. And especially the part... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Ireland, but there's like four provinces or four states, if you like. Mm -hmm. So the one that I live in would have the highest rate of suicide. 
And I'm just wondering, you know, um, from your experience, because you're younger than I am, I, I think that we assume that because life gets easier that we've got, you know, like washing machines, you know, we've got dishwashers, we've got loads of gadgets that make life easier. And yet the suicide rate has been rising steadily since like 1960. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Or is um, have you come across any research as to why that might be? I, you know, I, I don't think there's really research that and maybe I'm wrong because I, you know, I haven't done all the research, but sure. I don't think research really digs to the complexity of what uh, suicide really is, right? Huh. Um, I, I think it, it 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 bites at the bits and pieces of the details, but suicide is so complicated, right? There's so many there's so many moving factors in in life um, to to where or when a person commits suicide. It's it's, I think it's a buildup. It's a crescendo of this, 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 this internalized thought, right? And, and I've heard so many things about like suicide is selfish. And there's an argument to be made there. But at the same time, there's also an argument to be made against that, right? Suicide is both selfish and selfless, I think, in, in yeah. so many cases, certainly in my case, and I think my dad's case. Um, because there were things that happened that, that showed us that my dad was actually thinking about us. Was it convoluted? Certainly. But that doesn't take away the fact that he was thinking about us when he made this choice, right? Yeah. Just because we don't agree with it doesn't mean it's not selfless to him or how I was thinking about it wasn't selfless to me. Um, I, I really think just because life gets easier doesn't mean we connect more, right? It's connection, Probably right? And the, the, to be fair. The, the, the quality of that connection is is what matters, right? It's not about, you know, you and me go to a football match together. It's not that, right? It's not that we have things in common. It's that you have the ability to look at me and say, you know, Dylan, I want to tell you something that I I don't know how to talk about and I'm really afraid of what you'll say. And I say, then I will be very careful and I want you to be able to feel comfortable to tell me. I want you to be able to tell me the truth and I'm not gonna look at you with judgment. I'm not gonna look at you like I know what the right answer is, right? People need to feel, you know, as much as like in the US we talk about safe spaces, it's not about safe spaces, it's about creating safety within relationships, right? And that I think has been declining in some ways, right? We've, we've forgotten or maybe it was never there. I don't know. But we've we we have always struggled with building safety in relationships. That's why you know fifty percent of the relationships or the marriages in the United States don't work, right? And fifty percent of people divorce uh, because oftentimes we look at each other and say, you know what? I just don't love you anymore. And how is that safe, right? How is you know how are we? crafting our relationship building our relationship is it based in sex or is it based in safety right because one is more powerful than the other over the long term right and and so i i think if you want to address a problem like that you start there right safety right and and then from there you expand to the nodes of uh control freedom choice you know uh, self-love, self-hate. Um, you, you start looking at the things that I think people are researching. Um, but it's it's an expansive and complicated issue that I don't know if we're fully equipped to, 
to research it and, and study it at its full expanse right now. It's true, I suppose. And I suppose, you know, I'm always looking at it in a practical way. But, you know, yeah. life isn't always about practicalities, is it? And every generation right. has its own issues, you know. Um, I did hear you say, and I loved this, I think it was in one of your videos, that you said suicide isn't the problem, it's the result. And I think you've just encapsulated that, I mean, very comprehensively yeah. for us there. It is the result of everything. Um, why do you think men don't talk? Because no matter what way we look at it, you can look at every statistic, men um, die by suicide more often than women. Women do as well, but the figures are always greater when we look at men. You know, I mean, you're a man, you were in that position. Why do men find it difficult to talk? Is it really talking, though? I don't That's know, my... I suppose... I, sorry, I didn't mean to cut across you. I worked in education. So I worked in a university for a number of years and we did what's called suicide first aid. So it's an initiative that was brought in here to help us to recognize the signs. And, you know, one of the things they said, you know, get them talking, get them talking about something that's worth living for, whether it's children, a dog, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, get them talking. So it all seemed to stem back to talking. Now, maybe in your experience, that's wrong. But I suppose we all think if we can just get them to talk about what's on their mind, is that not relevant? See, it, that's the thing is like, we, we want them, we want men, we want people. And I, I, I don't, I don't dislike the discussion about men and women, but I, I think it's the same problem, right? Like, oh, I agree. It's, it's expression, right? It's, it's not talking, it's expression. Men are taught differently than women right and it's not that men are any different than women biologically sure we can we can have that conversation but again I, it goes back to that beginning when i said we all feel the same emotions right mm -hmm. men have been taught that anger is not an emotion and so that's they get a pass on anger but then everything else is weakness right and so when you start having a conversation about what's in their head everything's weakness except anger right and so they can talk right men can talk about angry things they can get mad right they can have those conversations but they can't talk about anything else right they can't have a conversation about anything else because of a stigma because of judgment because of weakness because of all the things that they've been taught not just like physically in person this is you know I've, I've explained this to you. This, you know, don't be, don't be uh, all sorts of different words, right? Yeah. And we can fit those in. But also treatment, right? How we treat kids, how parents treat kids, how friends of parents treat kids, how other kids treat kids. We've, we've allowed certain behaviors to, to go, you know, unchecked that, that make little boys look, look up to their parents or look up to whoever they're looking to look to their friends and say, okay, I guess I have to, I have to man up, right? I have to figure this out myself. Um, you know, I have to provide, right? The only value that I have is doing this, right? Um, and, and so you, you then create a generational loop of that, well, and now you, if essentially what's going to happen is if you have a valued structure of good, strong, stable men, 
and then you incorporate that generational loop, at some point you're going to lose the intricacies of values. You're going to lose the intricacies of building principles and living purposeful lives and finding something that you enjoy and love doing, even though it's hard. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find, I think, where we are now in this place where we don't know how to find what we love to do. We don't know how to build principles. We don't we don't get taught, right? Because, uh, you know, you can look at inner city children in the United States and say, well, you know, most of them don't have fathers, right? They grow up in fatherless households. Well, that's a remarkable indicator for suicide, right? It's a remarkable ind- indicator for criminality in, in the United States. Um, and, and what you then lose is this capacity for men to express themselves because it's very much like physically, emotionally, and spiritually against the status quo. And so men will talk, right? I can get most men talking about cars or sports or, you know, guns or anything like that, all sorts of things that men like to talk about. But men won't express. And that's, I think, the problem, right? Women have an easier time expressing themselves. um, And I think they often do it in less violent ways because maybe they're not akin to the violence that men are akin to. I don't know. You know, these are all these are all theories that I'm still kind of working through. But, you know, when you when you start asking the right questions, things kind of open up a little bit differently when you you know, when you look at what's the difference between talking and expressing, because there is a difference. Right. I think we're trying to get men to express, but we're labeling it as talking and that doesn't work. Right. And so we have to approach things differently, I think. That's a great point. Yeah, that is a really important point. The difference between talking and expressing, because you're right. I should have said express themselves that, you know, they don't. But there's so much in that. There, there really is. I don't know what I've done to the screen there. Um, so I wanted to ask you as well, because I suppose from my perspective, um, you know, I'm a medium. I connect with people after they've passed. OK, yeah. and a lot of people come to me to connect with people that have died. Okay, so to all intents and purposes, a lot of people that are listening have been bereaved by suicide. One thing that um, I wanted to ask you, if it's not too personal, I don't need you to share the exact detail. But did you get very hung up on why your dad decided to leave? Because it's for sure. It's the main question. People need to know why, you know, Um, I'm not sure there's always a reason. I have to be honest with you. That's, you know, what's what's funny about it is I was hung up on it for 20 years, right? And it, and it brought me to a point of, I, I think I think when I got my answer, right? And I didn't really get an answer. That's, a, that's the funny thing about this. When I got my answer, it was when I had my gun to my head. You know, it was when, it was, it was when everything kind of came into perspective and I said, wow, <laughs> I'm doing it. Right. I've, I've like, this is why, right? Like it was that it was my first time that I, you know, that I connected with my dad, you know, it's okay. And it was, Oh, I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll, I'll fight through it. Um, you know, it was that moment where I recognized for the first time that it was far more complicated than just, anything I could ever answer, right? Or he could answer. And so 
um, I I looked at it and I said, I don't I don't need an answer, right? And I've 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 continued this work not because not because I want to understand why my father did it. It's it's to help people understand why they want to do it, right? Because you can, you can answer that question, right? You may not be able to answer it perfectly with everything and every reason, because that's a remarkably hard question to answer. Certainly a hard question to ask, um, but you can begin to understand far more than you can ever look back and see someone that's gone and say, why, right? And sometimes I'm gonna be honest with you, you probably don't wanna know. There, there are people that have made that choice for reasons that you do not want to know. And that's yeah. not to say that you, you shouldn't go find it. If that's what you need, go, go do it, right? But don't be surprised if you get an answer that's remarkably terrifying, disgusting, uh, it, just rough, you know? Yeah. Um, because we do it, we all do it for different reasons. We all make that choice for different reasons and not all of them are are because you know we're hurting other people or we think we're hurting other people or because we don't want to be here anymore um some people have made terrible choices and they feel guilty to a point where it's it, it feels like that's what they have to do um you know I, I that's just the i think that's part of the human experience uh that that comes about i'm not saying that's the right thing or the good thing but that's there's a reality in play when we talk about human beings that is no different than nature nature is a terrifying place when you really look at it right you go you go look at what's out there in the world and and you realize you know we're just in our houses and we see a spider on the ceiling and we freak out right well there's far more terrifying things out in the world that you don't even know about yet um and suicide's no different we're we're a part of nature and and if you if you aren't comfortable with understanding that we are we have evil within us we have terrifying abilities to to conduct violence to get to conduct self-violence on ourselves to hurt people to abuse people uh then this is not the conversation that you're going to enjoy having but that's that's what is necessary in this conversation. There needs to be reality in these conversations. Otherwise, we're just glorifying, saving people that probably could have done it themselves. You know? Yeah. God, that's so, it's so profound. And, you know, from someone, like, I don't have anybody, thankfully, and I'm touching wood when I say that, that, you know, that passed through suicide. But, you know, I sure have hell met a lot of families, you know, and... Yeah. I think it's something that you that they never get a full answer to. I mean, I can, you know, we can give them a reason and someone can say this was on my mind, but it still doesn't seem to us like it's a reason to take that final act. And we'd probably never understand, you know. No. Um, because you're... Sorry. Give me... I'd like to add this. It's because sure. you're, you're asking a question that is attempting to answer of the full context of a human life, right? We can't even understand the full context of our own lives, let alone somebody else's, right? That's why we forget things, right? And so when you ask the question, why after suicide, 
you're asking, why did you end up here? Right? Because that's what I was asking. I was asking when I when I asked the question, why did my my dad end up committing suicide? I was asking, why from zero to thirty six years old did he come up with this idea that ending his life with two children and a wife, a home, you know, all these people around him was the was the best thing for him, right? And and you will never get the answer. Right? You will never get the full answer because you can't understand a human life. You can't understand the, like, that's 36 years of decisions, right? If we make like, it's somewhere between like 6,000 and 36,000 decisions a day, right? Wow. You, mul you multiply that by 365 and then you multiply that by 36. You're trying to understand maybe, you know, 10 million, 100 million decisions in a lifetime, you're trying to understand that, it's impossible, right? And so when you ask that question, know what you're getting yourself into. And the answer is, it's not complete. It never will be. And right. in many ways, you have to learn how to accept that. It's only the, the best answer you can get if there is a, a good answer is, what was the final push? What was the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like? And that's probably the most you'll get. But as you say, you'll never get to the end of it. Um, the other thing, and I noticed that it's a term that you use as well, and, and it's one that I'm always mindful of using because um, it can be hurtful. So um, we, and I would have said it maybe in the past to committed suicide, you know, because it used to be illegal, you know, so you used to commit suicide in the same way as you commit robbery or yep. whatever else. Um, is that hurtful? Have you found in your experience? Because I've met some people because I feel that they're already guilty. Could I have done something for my loved one? You know, should I have done something different? And then it's like we're accusing them of committing a crime. So all these things add up for the bereaved family, don't they? I'm sure yeah. you've dealt with a lot of families in your time. Is language important? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I do it out of habit sometimes because that's I grew up with commit. Um, yeah. But even me, I know I know that that's it can be a tough word. Um, and I try to avoid it. But again, I, I yeah, and, and I, I didn't mean to put you up as, as if to give out to you about it. But um, I'm, I'm no, it's, almost kind it's of true, though. Yeah, yeah, that's it's it's okay to hold me accountable, right? Like that's there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, as as much as I talk about words, I still make the mistake and I, I do my best to to use the right words. Doesn't mean I'm always going to get it right. But it's, it's a it is right like that that understanding that using the word commit suicide is that reminder of a past kind of i don't know uh, legal uh, conception yes. of suicide as it is it is illegal it is you are going to hell that's what i was taught when i was yeah. six years old my dad committed suicide i was taught that my dad's going to hell right really? so that didn't that didn't add that that didn't add benefit to how i managed that it was it was frustration. It was anger in there too, because of that. Um, you know, and I, I felt, I felt guilty for what he did. Right. And, and not for just the fact that people, you know, looked at it as he committed a sin, but also there was a part of it where at six years old, I told him not to go because I felt like he was never coming back. Right. And maybe that was kind of that six year old kind of, you always think your dad's never coming back when, when he leaves. Mm -hmm. But it felt so real that 
it became part of my trauma. It, it became part of that, that kind of living nightmare that I looked at him and I said, I am, I am at fault for him never coming back. I'm at fault for him leaving. Um, and that it sounds so ridiculous now when you look back on it and you're logical about it, but at six years old, you don't have logic, right? You're, you're still forming that ability. Um, and, and if you don't, like as a parent, if you don't recognize that, which I don't blame my mom at all, like how to, how is she supposed to know? There was no research on it back then. She was dealing with it too, yeah. Right. Like it's, if you don't recognize that, it's a remarkably isolating situation, right? And so when you throw on this idea that now suicide is a, a sin, it's a uh, crime, it's this this idea that like, he he made this choice and it's it's abundantly selfish it's all his fault it's there's an argument to be made that you're not wrong but at the same time there's a lot more to it right my my dad like looking at his life was ab abused severely by an alcoholic father and potentially an alcoholic mother i don't know a lot of his history mm -hmm. um but i do know that it was a very alcoholic family um and after his suicide they excommunicated my mom and my side of the family. Um, and basically, you know, they told me that his, you know, his, his suicide was a sin um, and he was going to hell. Uh, and, and I like, it, it was almost like that religious kind of trauma of like, like how am I supposed to process that at six years old and beyond? Um, and so there was, there was so much that happened within that kind of sphere of, that that situation that it was just so remarkably disconnecting it was so isolating um and so when you add on words like commit suicide on top of all of that um you you just isolate more right it's it's not as much i don't know if it's it's certainly hurtful i shouldn't say it's not but it wasn't hurtful for me it was just isolating it was disconnecting it was how am I supposed to have a conversation about this when all of these people think this was, you know, a father that I loved so dearly, yeah. right? As a young boy, I now have to look at him as basically a criminal, a, a man that was that has sinned and cannot be, you know, revived or, you know, however you want to look at it. Um, and so it's remarkably, it's another thing that isolates and that's not good. That's not, it's not good at all. Yeah. And especially like I, I am from a religious family and, you know, um, we're Catholic, you know, I'm Irish. So what else would we be? But, you know, we, we grew up with this idea of heaven and hell and never the twain shall meet. So I can imagine that if you had that belief as a child, you know, and being told that your dad was going to hell and whatever, you probably thought, you know, I'm never going to see him again. Not even if I die, I'm not going to see him again because hopefully I'm going to go to heaven and he's going to be down there burning away. That's that's huge trauma and a huge weight yeah. for a six-year-old to carry, you know? Yeah. But I or can you, only follow, assume... you follow him to hell. Yeah, that's true too. And I can only assume, I mean, I'm sure nobody meant to put that on you, but... Um, I suppose they were dealing with their own grief and, you know, they probably weren't aware of how much of it you were taking in at the time. Yeah. You know, I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, Dylan. And, you know, to, to get to the point, you know, where you felt that it may have been the only 
choice for you. I mean, I am so glad that you're here and we all are. Because, you know, to meet somebody and to talk to somebody who's been standing at that cliff edge, but decided to come back and stay, you know, because it's one thing that families are always asking, were they thinking about me? And if it's not too upsetting, uh, let this be the final question. When you were at that moment, because every family wants to know this, did they think of them or was it just their own issues? Can you even remember or is it all a blur? It's the reason I stopped, right? I mean, when you have, when you have people, it matters, right? When you have connection, it matters, right? To, to make that choice, if there's any logic there, right? Mm -hmm. The connections matter, right? If there's no logic there, and that's not to say that everybody's the same, but if there's no logic there, they're not going to look at people. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I know in my in my time of you know self-destruction, I was looking at myself until I wasn't, right? And and maybe my logic kicked in for a moment, and I realized there was a whole lot of people that would have that would have been looking at me like my dad, right? And I had made promises to myself that I wouldn't become that. I wouldn't do that. Um, and so it was, it was both my, f my friends, my family, um, and it was my principles that kept me alive, I think. Right? I, I, can't, I can't guarantee. I, you know, that choice was so emotional. It was so, you know, as vivid as it was, it was so confusing, right? Because I spent the next three days trying to figure out what had just happened. Um, but I can tell you the next three days, I, I picked four people to have conversations with that I had never had conversations about that topic with anybody. Um, and I forced myself to, right? It was, um, and no, I didn't pick those four people for no reason, right? Those four people had, had kept me alive through many years, right? Um, my, my two best friends, my mom and my sister. Um, and those those people mattered so intimately to me that they became the first ones to recognize, well, not recognize, to be revealed the problem that I, I found myself to have. Um, and I had been suicidal for 20 years, and they had never known, right? I had never revealed it, never talked about it, right? I talked about my dad, like, yeah, my dad committed suicide when I was six. That's why I don't drink, right? Like, that was a common conversation for me. But it was never, and I feel like killing myself every day, right? That was never a part of the conversation. I was never willing to be honest because of so many plethora of reasons. Um, but in that final moment, it was, it was people that reminded me that there's, there's, still, there's still more. There's still and I'm glad I didn't. And we're glad yeah. you didn't, because you are doing such important work. Dylan, thank you so much for your time. I mean, I alone have learned so much, and I think I'll definitely be better poised to help anybody that comes to me in future. But I know that people that are listening will have learned so much. So I'm going to put all your links in the description box attached here, your website, your podcast, your book. Can I just ask, I, I see that you have a text service as well for people who need that daily reminder. Does that work internationally? It, it 
Kinda and kinda not. It won't work in Ireland, unfortunately. I don't think. Oh, okay. um, you can attempt it through WhatsApp, um, yeah. but I can't guarantee that'll work. Um, it, it works in Canada and it works in the United States for sure. I don't know if I have anybody from Mexico, but uh, you can you can attempt it with WhatsApp, but it's it's really a um, from what I understand only a US based. US based. So Canada's kind of a, a spotty one. But sure. yeah, I'm. I, I hope at some point that they move it to international because that's. I, I definitely. Definitely something. I wish I could. But for now, I will send people to your TikTok because I know there is loads of good videos on there that will really get people thinking. And just because I didn't mention it earlier, you are also a life coach, and people can contact you through your website. And if they feel like they've resonated with anything that you said, um, would you encourage them to reach out to you? Absolutely. I do. I still do free consultations. I don't know how much longer I'll do that for. Um, but I, I still, you know, my my goal is, again, to give you a space where you can freely express yourself. You don't have to tell me everything. You don't have to tell me anything. Right? It, yeah. You can let me talk if you want to. Um, but it's a place where I want you to be able to understand that I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to tell you what's right or wrong. I'm here to allow you to express yourself and if you don't know how we'll find the words and we'll figure that out cool dylan thank you so much and thank you to everybody for listening and i will see you in the next episode and until then take care and stay safe discussing everything about the afterlife